I'm currently reading uh, a biography um, by Michael McIntyre, um, the comedian, but uh, it was a, a different comic uh, and TV presenter, a quiz show host, uh, Bob Monkhouse, that famously wrote in his biography, they all laughed when I said I wanted to be a comedian, <laughs> but they're not laughing now. Well, it's a clever twist on the uh, old proverb, he that laughs last, laughs longest, which is in turn from a line in a 17th century Oxford College drama, though perhaps has its root in this reading. For they all have a sense of a reversal of fortunes that brings delight. The one who is able to laugh at the end is the holder of the greatest prize. Jesus' teaching in the passage we read uh, speaks of this reversal, which will come when the messianic kingdom is seen in all of its fullness. We see glimpses at the moment, but one day it will be seen in all of its fullness. This reading in Luke is sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. You know, it's got a very vague similarity to that uh, passage in Matthew, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we, we can spot the similarity there. But this one uh, was teaching given primarily to people that are referred to as disciples. We hear the description of the big crowd, but then he speaks to his disciples. But we must not think that refers only to the twelve who become apostles. No, it's more than that. This is a sizable crowd of people who are seeking to understand and become followers of the way of Jesus. It's not everyone that includes those who actually reject him and are seeking to hinder his path, nor does it include those who merely want to tag along because of Jesus' celebrity status and the power of healing that they simply see as miraculous rather than seeing it as an outpouring of God's love, an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. It is therefore teaching that is coming to those who trust in Jesus that want something more of his kingdom. They are people for whom there is perhaps little food and not much money but a great deal of sorrow. The teacher's sermon gives them hope by pointing towards God's coming kingdom. It's likewise speaking to us to challenge our preconceptions of how society operates, how things must be, and also how we play our part in that society 
whether we maintain the concept that the North is always at the top of the map or whether the world can be turned upside down. There are four key areas that Jesus addresses with both a blessing and a woe. The first is the poor. But we can see in the text, and I would encourage you to sometimes have your own Bible with you in church. You know, that way you might be able to follow it. You might even, you know, dare I say that, you might even be able to write a note in it or highlight something, you know, destructive, I know. But either that or have a notebook. So sometimes it's really useful to have something that records what you've been thinking about. Maybe you can scribble it in when you get home if you don't have it with you. It's really useful. But the poor are spoken of here in the passage in the sense not so much of how much money in the first instance that they have, but that they are disenfranchised in their worshipful life. Those who ran the temple and facilitated the prayer life of the Hebrew community were wealthy. The priestly class, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And there was also the money changers out in the the outer courtyard who made a pretty penny on their transactions. And these people controlled through their actions, through ways of enforcement, through their social constructs, how people were able to worship, how people were able to live in the kingdom of God. And in addition to that, it was thought that the wealthy were thought to be blessed by God. You know, they must be, they must be blessed by God. You, you know, if, if they've got this money, if they've got their robes, if they've got the nice house, surely God has shone on them. But Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is for the poor. And that those who have caused obstruction, the rich, have had their comfort. He doesn't name the temple staff here, but the inference is that they who thought themselves close to God but who didn't lead a godly life, will face a time of trial. What of us? How open and welcome are we to all? Not just a hello at the door, but how welcoming are we? How do we ensure that we reflect the Lord's love in here, and also out there in the world. The second reversal of fortune is certainly those without money. It's between those who are hungry and those who are well-fed. Jesus, in his ministry, speaks many a parable about the heavenly feast and how people from all over will be welcome at it. People who have struggled in poverty are to be fed and will have a seat 
we see, as we read our Bibles, that at the first Passover, the, the lambs are being shared between neighbors. And then on the Exodus journey, God feeding everyone equally, giving them all they need with manna and quail, with a view to the arrival in the promised land, the land that is aflow with milk and honey. The law given through Moses did not allow for the children of Israel to be hungry. It was intended to support each other, particularly widows and orphans. Hence, in the account of Ruth, how she has freedom to glean in the field. That was part of the law. Aaron and Naomi had nothing, but Ruth could go to the field and harvest, even without the generosity of Boaz. And yet, by the first century, the temple's guardians of the law eat well while others go hungry. So we see again in Jesus' teaching a restoration of God's intention at the expense of those who have abused their privilege. The challenge here is how do those of us who are well-fed fit in? How comfortable does that make us feel? I wonder how much food waste is in our homes. Do we buy just what we need and then make use of it? What impact does it make on the planet and our health if we are excessive consumers? It's not good stewardship of the earth, nor does it respect God's goodness to us. What too do we do if we are able to help those who are hungry? One way, of course, is the food bank drop point. Open Monday to Friday, about 10 until 5. And I hope as the cost of living increases and it will impact us, those of us who can will still be able to give to those who are in much greater need. The third point Jesus raises are those in sorrow and those who laugh. Just as my opening line from Monkhouse, these words are not about comedy and jokes. It is about situations and attitude and power. Abram and Sarah laugh at the concept that they would have a child, that they would conceive a son. But the laughter was not of God. Sometimes in the Old Testament, the word laughing comes in the form of thinking of an individual that is a laughing stock. might think of Job, who considered himself to be a laughing stock. 
or even at times the whole nation of Israel being a laughing stock. The poor, the hungry, the marginalized were treated so as a bit of a laughing stock. And sometimes that is still true today. Something to be sneered and laughed at by those in power. One rule for the powerful, another for everyone else. That's how it was. Is that how it is? Jesus says no. The position will be reversed. Those who abuse their power will be the ones who mourn and weep. Our God is just and will ultimately bring judgment on every individual, no matter what position or high office they have achieved. Those who laugh and party at the expense of others will get their comeuppance. Judgment and justice will be done. Now, of course, we may feel that we are not in power. We are not powerful, and we're not in comparison with those in the White House or the Kremlin or Downing Street or the Elysee Palace or so on and so forth, where those who rule the earth reside and reign from. However, is our attitude and the values that we hold dear orientated by the culture of society of the fallen world or by the cultural values of the coming kingdom? Rather than sneer, do we love and welcome and include without question and without comment? Because if we are making snide comments or saying hello through gritted teeth, then we are not being loving. Do we love with God's love any individual, whatever their race, their age, their clothing, their piercings, or any other attribute? We like to nod our head and say, oh yes, we love all. But sometimes wonder. And I think I can be as guilty of that. And I imagine you might be too. The fourth and final element that Jesus raises in this blessing, and the word blessing actually kind of refers to something becoming holy. This blessing made new and woe to the others. This fourth element Jesus raises is a question mark over faithfulness and recognizing that the disciples around him may well suffer in his name. But recognizing, too, that if people are speaking well of us, we might not be doing the right thing. When we are getting praise, we might enjoy that. But actually... Is it the right praise we should be getting? The prophets of old spoke to power, and it did not 
go down well. As the word of God was shared, it challenged authority, and rarely would a king change their habits of lifetime. The exception maybe being the king of Nineveh, you know, in the story of Jonah. You know, there they put on sackcloth and ashes. Elsewhere, they wanted to kill the prophet. As John the Baptist called for repentance, he was arrested and then beheaded. As disciples traveled in the days of the early church, they are imprisoned and killed. Of the twelve, not counting Judas, who took his own life, all but John are thought to have been martyred. The Apostle Paul too. The church in many nations today is still persecuted for preaching the truth of Christ. And why is that? It's because it challenges authority and says that we have to live differently. We're fortunate in this country with its many blessings that although street preachers are sometimes arrested, there is not the sustained persecution of other lands. However, do we personally speak God's truth to those in power? When we are challenged by what we hear on the news, do we write or email or tweet our MP? It's quite easy to communicate with MPs these days. Really easy. You can do it in five minutes. When we are challenged, do we do that? Could we be viewed by others as if false prophets... The false prophets were popular with the kings because they told the kings what the kings wanted to hear. Do we merely hold up a mirror to society as a means to copy the world rather than to allow God's vision and calling to be heard, to be said, look, this is what you look like. You have to change. Do we allow the reality of God's intentions for the coming kingdom? And do we bring even a little flavor of that kingdom into the world today? The fullness of the kingdom will be different to the world as we normally see it. And if we think we are comfortable, if we are delighting in our position, then the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Plain would say that we must beware. Because it could be us that see our good fortune turned over. It is the faithful poor the hungry, those who are laughed at, and those who struggle under oppression because of their faith, who will be the ones who are laughing as Christ returns to reign.
I wonder will we be among that number. Until that day, may we be in the world, but not of it, and serve our Lord with a righteous heart. Amen.